Hello, and welcome back to the Film Report Podcast. If you are joining us again after listening to episodes one and two, thanks for coming back. If you're new to the show, thanks for checking us out. We hope you like it. Today, Gabby and I are talking about Frederick Wiseman's 1983 documentary, The Store, which is about the Neiman Marcus flagship store in Dallas, Texas. Gabby, would you like to do a synopsis of this documentary or talk a little bit about it? Yeah, and I would also like to add this is a great film for December because it's almost a little bit of a holiday film. It takes place between Thanksgiving and Christmas in Dallas in 1982. So, um, and it's at Neiman Marcus, a luxury retail brand store. Frederick Wiseman is known for his observational documentaries, so we get to watch the Dallas, Texas, Neiman Marcus. We watch the customers shopping on the floor. We see all of the departments that they have. We see the marketing meetings that they have behind the scenes, and you just get a good feel for what what it was like on the floor and working at Neiman Marcus in 1982 when it was pretty much in its prime. As you said, it's timely because we are in the holiday season. It's also timely because Frederick Wiseman's latest documentary was just released in virtual cinemas, City Hall, a four and a half hour long documentary about City Hall in Boston, I believe. So you can uh, use this as just a little appetizer, perhaps before going to see the latest and greatest from Frederick Wiseman. Yeah. And this one, if you're interested, or if you have seen it already, it's two hours, so not quite as quite as long of a commitment as four-hour film. And it is, we watched it on Canopy, which is a, a streaming app that's free with a library subscription, which is pretty nice. They have a great selection on there. What else? Talk a little bit about background for the film, of the background of the film and Wiseman and whatever else we found in our research beforehand. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting to note that we've both together watched a few Wiseman films already. We watched High School, which is the second film that he ever created. And then we watched, what was it, the um, the one about the museum, National Gallery? National Gallery, that's right. Yeah. Um, so it's, he does, Frederick Wiseman does, every single one of his documentaries is on some sort of public institution. And um, yeah, so... Should we, yeah, move into some facts that we found researching? Yeah, I have some super quick ones, cool. some that are a little bit longer. I'll just start with a real quick one. This was his 15th feature-length documentary, if my counting on Letterboxd was accurate. And it was his very first to be shot in color. And he thought that color was essential to this one because of how color is just kind of intrinsic to what the Neiman Marcus store is. You have to be able to capture the color of shoes and clothing and everything that uh, makes up the physical aesthetic of the store. Makes sense. Yeah, I also, you stole my my fact that I found oh. as well, but I have a little extra piece to add on there. So 
Everything before, as Michael mentioned, that he had created was in black and white film. And I guess, at, you know, around that time, um, most people were limited to the use of black and white film because it was difficult to obtain a really high quality color reproduction with by only using natural light. Um, so the store was his first crack at this, you know, using high color or high speed color film. And I guess he also mentioned that shooting in Neiman Marcus was like being handed a $20 million set, which I thought was funny, mm. especially given, you know, he's shot in correctional institutes and courthouses and all this stuff. So, yeah, it makes sense that Neiman Marcus would be a fun setting for him to be in. Yeah, it's a quite beautiful store and it makes for a pretty aesthetically pleasing documentary, especially relative to some of the other ones. Yeah. That we've watched. Uh, cool. Um, another one, this is more about Weissman's process in general. I don't think this is specific to the store, but uh, Weissman is known for working with super small crews on all of his documentaries. Sometimes they're only consisting of three people, himself included, and he usually records sound himself, like he's literally also holding the boom mic. Um, and then the other two people would be his cinematographer and, a, and an assistant who's just carrying the 16 millimeter magazines and other equipment. Um, so super small crews, which um, seems to let him into those really intimate kind of private meetings that you see at all kinds of institutions. Um, grants him that fly-on-the-wall access that really defines his style. Interesting that you would say fly-on-the-wall, because mm. many people use the term fly-on-the-wall to talk about Frederick Wiseman's work, and mm. he actually is very offended by that term mm. and has said, most flies I know aren't conscious at all, and I like to think I'm at least 2% conscious. That is fair. It is not the most complimentary of <laughs> phrases. I think it's unfortunate that that's the one we have landed on as our really common description of this kind of uh, the nice, relatively neutral filmmaking. The nicer way to put it is cinema verite. Mm, he prefers cinema verite. Well, I think would think he would be. It sounds classier. It does. <laughs> Much classier. Um, that was else? your fact, I guess, right? Yeah. Well, yes, it was. I mean, I can, yeah, I can add more facts in there as well. Um, I also found that he shot, um, as you mentioned, he was on 16 millimeter film. He shot 110,000 feet or 55 hours of film in total for this project, which I'm not sure what to, I don't really know what most documentaries end up shooting in hours, but sounds to me like that would be a very overwhelming lot of clips and films to to unpack and edit together and he did a great job editing yeah. it into a cohesive story absolutely this is super quick this is a biographical detail detail about wiseman that i just landed on he graduated from yale law and briefly taught law at boston university's law school before making his debut documentary titicut follies I never knew that. I never knew that he was originally not interested in film. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he got into it later in life and then um, made Teddy Cut Follies in 1967, which looked at a correctional institute, and then 83 is when the store was created. So, yeah, yeah I think that's interesting, too. And 
kind of speaks to how he's interested in, um, I mean, at least some of his projects seem to be interested in social justice or, you know, fairness, or at least showing the truth in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another little addition that I found is that he is critical of the didacticism of his earlier work. Um, mm-hmm. So he feels like earlier on he was telling people a little bit more with his work what to think, and he he believes his movies should are more novelistic than journalistic and that he shouldn't be telling people what to think, that they should be figuring it out on their own and that he doesn't want some sort of, you know, banging you over the head with a message kind of documentary. Mm. That's interesting that he describes what he wants to do as novelistic rather than journalistic. I actually would think that a journalist is just presenting me with the facts, whereas a novelist telling me a story. It sounds like he's wanting to not necessarily tell a story but i think i understand what the goal is just interesting choice of words from his from his perspective i would think novels usually you can interpret a story how you want you don't necessarily know mm, yeah i guess you you don't necessarily know uh, well sometimes you're told how, what, what people are thinking but with journalism it's like uh, well yeah i don't know that's kind of an interesting Phrasing, I suppose, but yeah, I think I'm, I think I get what he's after. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what else, Michael? I think that's all I got for fast facts. Okay. Any others yeah. do you want to cover think, before we get into the movie? I think I have a few more. Well, so I was okay. Actually, first of all, he was born in 1930 in Boston, so he's currently 90 years old, turning 91 in January, and this film. His, um, his film, The Store, aired December 14th, 1983 for PBS, which I thought was cool that it kind of like aired on TV. Um, I, didn't, I couldn't find anything on how it was received. I was kind of interested mm. in knowing what Neiman Marcus thought of it. It's always interesting that these, these people are inviting him into their space, um, but I'm not sure. Uh, and the other last little bit was I was very curious while I was watching this, especially with how kind of um, egotistical some people were about working for Neiman Marcus. I was like, how, hmm. are, di- how are they doing now? Um, we're, Michael and I are in Seattle, so we there's a Neiman Marcus in Washington, in Bellevue. But um, this year, among amongst COVID, um, Neiman Marcus has declared bankruptcy and closed a bunch of their stores and laid off a bunch of their employees. So, um, and the, the one location in Washington is, was one of the ones that closed. Um, so it's, uh, it's interesting to kind of have that happening as well right now. And, um, in the context of things, but yeah. Yeah. And that just makes the documentary feel even more valuable as it, you know, a document of this institution that is now disappearing. Yeah. Uh, and that the, the fact that it's disappearing is only, it, it's at top of mind in the holiday season. That's what's really great about his documentaries is that they are uh, really kind of preserving the images of these things that um, 
once were. Yeah. And I don't, I haven't spent a lot of time in Neiman Marcus, but I feel like there's also similar stores that maybe aren't touted as quite as luxury, maybe um, like Bloomingdale's or Nordstrom. Um, and it, it was interesting and cool to see what Neiman Marcus was doing in 1982 um, to market themselves. And it felt like there was a lot of really unique, fun stuff that they were <laughs> doing during the holidays that was really creative. Um, and I almost kind of miss that that we don't have access to, to things like that. Um, so we'll get more into that later, I suppose. Yeah. Did you want to talk about initial thoughts about how you felt watching the movie, all that? Yeah, we can maybe move into our reactions and thoughts about the film itself. Yeah. I liked it. I don't think there's any Wiseman film I have seen that I disliked. And this is no exception. I don't know that the sum of the parts of this one added up to quite as much as some other ones that I've seen of his have, but um, I liked it quite a bit. What about you? Yeah, I think I, I, I enjoyed it very much in the sense of being able to observe this time that I haven't necessarily experienced of, uh, you know, a luxury retail store during the holidays in Dallas in the 80s. Um, it's it's a cool time capsule to to see how um, marketing was thought about and and see how how people talked about clothing at that time, but yeah, I would say there wasn't necessarily some sort of overall message or feeling that I got um, that I was supposed to take away, which I guess is you know Wiseman doesn't necessarily want you to take away some sort of heavy-handed message, but I think I very much just enjoyed the film for, for being able to observe and compare to present day. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned not being able to find, you know, much in terms of what the response to this film was, but part of me wonders, you know, how many people at the time would watch that and see Neiman Marcus in this headquarters in this store in particular as just so corporate and they would kind of crit criticize the hard drivings you know um sales above all else kind of mentality but honestly in 2020 it feels just downright quaint to me <laughs> it, like it's it's kind of true i feel like some of the the articles that i came across when i was researching were talking about you know how how much it showed like the wealth and the kind of how disgusting it was in some ways, how ridiculously expensive things were. But, you know, it, I would agree with you that it, it almost does feel like, Oh, what simpler times it was to have <laughs> things you could pay money for that were actually good quality things. Um, and yeah, uh, I don't know. It was, I, I don't feel like I necessarily got that where I was like, oh, look at these people paying all this money. What a waste. Um, I feel yeah. like that probably is the impression I, I would think that people get from it. But it just feels like um, now the the state of the world feels more like uh, I'm going to buy all these 
$25 things off of Amazon and racks mm. up kind of the same way sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And I, I could see someone at the time describing it as maybe this portrait of materialism in a way, but that's not the first thing that comes to mind when I watch it. Now I just think about how personal so many of the interactions that we watch are relative to what we do have today, which is so predominantly online. I mean, you know, we talk about personalized marketing in the age of Amazon and e-tailers, which are not personal at all. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's a lot of trying to get AI online to figure out what you might like based on what you've looked at already. And it's very far from being personal because they're putting you into a little box and trying yeah. to figure out what you might like. Um, so yeah, it was, it was refreshing to see how personal these interactions were, I would agree, and also just how knowledgeable all of these associ like sales associates were. It felt very much like this is a career that these people had. They have very specialized knowledge of what kind of mink coats um, that are being produced at that time or about jewelry. And it feels... As I said, I, I don't necessarily go into stores that are quite as luxury, but it feels like the retail store experience is not at all like that. And even just generally looking at the, the age difference of sales associates now, it, it feels like it's, um, it's more of a stage in people's career and most people want to be an associate and then move into corporate. But in this, it was like a lot of people, you know, all of the associates looked like they were 40 plus years old mm -hmm. um and yeah just very very knowledgeable and intending to probably stay in that you know career path as a, a sales associate for that specific department or whatever yeah yeah and i certainly i don't think there's anything here that shows wiseman going out of his way to show anybody who is made unhappy by all of this materialism and this corporate mentality about profit and sales above all else, I would say that the vast majority of the people at, at first glance, at least on the surface, seem content and comfortable and obviously financially comfortable, that's for sure. <laughs> but this doesn't seem like it's about exposing anything, you know, that this materialism causes or anything like that no not really there were definitely certain speeches or moments where um i'm thinking about even a moment when i'm not quite sure what this man's title was maybe store manager he's looking at a bunch of dishware they looked like they were made from silver looking at it with another woman and she's letting him know the pricing and even he's like wow that doesn't i don't even know if i'd pay that much for that um mm. do you remember that part i don't know um i remember that scene yeah yeah yeah. um and it's just it was i don't know funny to not funny but interesting to to even have someone working at the store acknowledge that something seemed a little crazy priced but mm -hmm. yeah you mentioned that we get to see some of the different marketing strategies of the day 
Yeah. Which I thought were really fun to see. You see in-store runway shows that they host. I loved that. Yeah. That was not something that we have today anymore. We see a restaurant that's in the building where customers at the restaurant will have models coming around to different tables and showing off whatever they're wearing, telling customers how much it costs. Um, yeah, just a very different day and age. Definitely. I'm trying to think of the, I also loved the, that little photo booth or kind of like beauty photography area of mm. the store that they had. I don't know if that was just a holiday thing or a year round um, option, but it looked like women would come during their lunch hour and get their photo taken. And uh, it just, it, if it was just during the holidays, I feel like it would be cool if you could try on some Neiman Marcus clothes and then take some really nice quality holiday shots in there. But I don't think that was necessarily what, what they were doing. I think people went in their own clothes and then took a photo. But anyways, I liked that. I thought that was fun. Yeah. And this is pivoting a little bit topic-wise, but this is just where my mind was going. Right as the film gets going, we hear a relatively senior person talk about sales being of the utmost importance to uh, Neiman Marcus staff and that being the goal above everything else. And he makes this analogy where uh, he's comparing Neiman Marcus uh, salespeople to, to doctors mm -hmm. and saying, you know, that... And, and just making this analogy, which is very, a very funny analogy to hear, especially in this moment in 2020, where people are talking about what it means to be an essential worker. Yeah. And um, this guy very much making it out to sound like he thinks they are of that much uh, value and importance. Yeah, he talked about doctors mechanics and undertakers it's a very mm -hmm. odd mix of jobs to compare but i thought it was just interesting that he compared it to all of these careers that kind of quote-unquote fix people or things mm -hmm. um i mean undertaker i guess maybe not fixing quite as much as like making look better to go into the coffin, um, dressing, I suppose. But it's, it, it was interesting to think about, you know, it in that mindset of like, we're, we're fixing people and helping them feel better about, I don't know, about themselves. Yeah. One series of comments I was a little less sure what to do with was one other senior guy at the firm talking about the relationship between buyers and suppliers and him talking about buyers um, yeah, he did, being unethical did in not certain like situations. Buyers. He did not. He was like, they deserve the worst treatment. I was like, whoa, I don't think you're allowed to say that. It was one <laughs> of the more striking scenes, I think, in the movie in terms of people just talking at a, at a, for an extended period of time. Yeah. I thought we might actually spend more time with buyers 
and we did not, if I remember correctly. It was a little confusing on what people's roles were. uh, Because, yeah, it it was unclear whether, like, the woman showing off the, the bra line or the sleepwear line was a buyer or if she was just for sales she was a sales associate it was kind of hard to tell but um yeah i don't know if i really got the full understanding of what he was referring to yeah, yeah. um but yeah definitely like he was implying that they're crooks when dealing with manufacturers and lying to get their way mm-hmm. um and to you know beat out competition however they can yeah yeah. One other thing that stood out, and again, this is a different topic. I'm just pivoting as different things come to my mind. One is just, I don't know that it's terribly surprising that the vast majority of customers are women, but the men we do see are either there with their wives, like one guy we see at a jewelry counter with mm-hmm. his wife, and there's that nice shot of them as a the couple mirror. in that little vanity mm-hmm. mirror. Yeah. I like that. A nice little formal touch. And then there was the guy who we see multiple times buying a coat for his <laughs> wife, a yeah. sable coat. Um, yes. Otherwise, we're seeing these Southern Belle type, clearly clearly very wealthy Very women. done up makeup, earrings, jewelry, full shebang. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Yeah. Every now and then you see people that are more casually dressed that probably are not getting waited on <laughs> there, yeah. but... But yeah, I guess I just kept kind of thinking about the different gender dynamics it's displaying because you don't see any women in the upper ranks. I was, what we that can was tell. what I was going to yeah bring up as well. Yeah, you. it's kind of like the only time that there's a leader talking, it's always a man. There's occasionally mm-hmm. women that talk at length, but they're very clearly not in a necessarily high up leadership corporate role. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's more that they might be leading the sales floor or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And going along with that too is interesting when one of the women who uh, she, she worked in, it looked like one of the kind of like custom dress making or custom clothes making sections, but she goes to get her photo taken in the photo department and she tells this the photographer that she doesn't want to look like a career woman. She wants to look softer. Mm, um, softer, yeah. And it just felt so different from today where I feel like the whole thing is everyone wanting to look like a boss bee. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just it feels like, it's you know, female strength is such a big thing now and you know, before it was like, oh, I, I really want to retain my femininity, even even if I'm, you know, if I have a, a career. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sometimes I find myself distinguishing between what was uh, reflective of a, the typical Neiman Marcus customer versus what's reflective of the customer client the, the customer base in dallas texas which is distinctly southern some of these women are clearly very southern yeah um and if even at the time maybe any of this would have felt different or we just had a different market store in new york city or something like that i feel like maybe you wouldn't get that same kind of comment um, maybe yeah 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 it's true 
Um, I also, there's just a few scenes that I need to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) What you got? Out of context. (laughs) One, it was very exciting to see that an E.T. stuffed animal was on sale. Sign of the times. Yep. E.T., very popular. They should bring it back. Um, I also... (laughs) Loved that we saw that man, grown man, dressed as an elf, walking around the store at various scenes throughout the film. Multiple times, yes. Oh, yeah. I was always glad to see him. (laughs) Yeah, once again, there's the elf guy. I was initially very amused by the chicken birthday scene, and then it turned weird and uncomfortable (laughs) it went on for so long i could not believe that was real and that lady handled that man like a champ and i cannot believe that he stripped at the end as well that was ridiculous so workplace dynamics that's why we have uh sexual harassment training now Mm -hmm. people which is what's funny is that like had that scene been 30 to 60 seconds long it would have just felt like an instance of an example of how people celebrate each other's birthdays and stuff at the (laughs) at the company but at that length it goes on for so long it just becomes like a story in itself where you're like okay and at this point it's no longer saying something about neiman marcus (laughs) or texas it is just about this bizarre man (laughs) in a bird costume strangest thing i could not believe that and then i just found it so hilarious and so tone deaf of this one man leading this meeting talking about how trying to find this relatable occurrence that apparently everybody at neiman marcus experiences no matter the level that if you tell someone at a party that you work at Neiman Marcus, everyone suddenly looks up to you and puts you up on a pedestal. And he's like, who hasn't felt that? Come on. And it was just, and you know, this one lady's like, I'm just a regular person, but you know, I can feel people putting me up on that pedestal. And yeah, it was, it was very funny commentary. Um, It's interesting how Frederick Wiseman kind of like pops those scenes in here and there that are just, and think about that how you want but yeah it felt very egotistical and he even said that there are certain situations certain experiences that customers have at Neiman Marcus that bring about the same emotions that someone might still have about Kennedy's assassination was like, mm. dude that's, Quite the uh, that's a little extreme there buddy yeah but. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The the idea that this really egotistical attitude is like part of like just the corporate culture and that's yeah. put in people from day one and day after day in meetings with that kind of language um is is something. Yeah. For sure. I also I wanted to talk about Frederick Wiseman's documentary style, and A, I I felt that it was very similar to the style of how, um, oh, now I'm going to forget her name. Um, She uh, edited and created Camera Person, Mm, Kristen Johnson. Johnson. Yes. Um, I, you know, it was 
similar in some ways. Obviously, Kristen Johnson's camera person edits together all of these, you know, mismatched footages that the only thing that is in common is that she was shooting them herself. But she creates this story through editing it that, you know, and that everybody who's watching it might experience something different or get something different from it. And it feels a little bit like that's how Frederick Wiseman's is as well. Obviously, it's in, it's one cohesive setting, but I, I really appreciate the fact that it's it's so observational for the viewer and that there's no commentary there's no um there's not even like subtitles to tell you who the people are and what their titles are it's kind of just you're just there to watch and and take it in and make your own opinions and i really like that and i feel like it's very rare for documentaries and it feels like a lot of the documentaries that get a lot of credit even though Frederick Wiseman of course is also people say that he's one of the best documentary filmmakers ever but also mm. it feels like the documentaries that get credit are ones with a really strong message about how mm. a certain something is really really terrible or a certain something is really really needed um so yeah yeah I would agree I think too often documentaries don't trust our audience enough to form opinions and make connections and feel the need to spell things out, whether it's through talking heads or interviews or on-screen text. And yeah, that is his sort of MO is to just present you with the footage in a way that he thinks has a rhythm and kind of has mini narratives nested within a larger narrative. I think that's consistent with camera person. Um, yeah, and that's very that satisfying. Comes back to and other stuff is just a little vignette. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think they're really kind of brilliantly edited for them to be as kind of engrossing as they are. There's always just something kind of about the rhythm he finds in his editing that I think is really immersive and just satisfying in and of itself. You know, he's. He kind of gets that the institution, Neiman Marcus, is not just the people, but the things in it and the space of the place. You know, we get shots of the escalator that takes you between floors, but you also get shots of the elevator. Um, you get the display cases, these open areas where there are presents like the ET. Mm -hmm. um, and then you get, obviously, all kinds of different interactions. But then also just the shots of people just doing their thing in the store, whether it's browsing for a minute or waiting behind the counter, that real fullness of what the what, what it means to to what this place is exactly. Um, yeah, is is always really uh, clear in his documentaries. Yeah, and I love I love that he gets creative with the way that he shoots as well. It's not it's. It's honestly very, very pretty cinematography. I think he's even won awards for his cinematography. And, like, you know, the shot that comes to mind is the, the shot of the husband and wife shopping for jewelry or these really nice close-ups of people during meetings with this, like, kind of soft, blurred background. It's kind of amazing what he's able to get on the fly shooting in this store and... It would be so fascinating to hear 
how he decided to to pick the shots that he did um and, and why he might have left certain things out but um but yes i do i love how much this is like a time capsule and just nice to know just just hear people's conversations rather than people talking to the camera so that you can really hear how people were thinking and talking and I don't know. Yeah, people's thought processes at the time. It's just it's just a nice different medium and way of interpreting and uh, taking in, I don't know, the way things were at that time. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it felt a little unique relative to something like National Gallery or when he did called Ex Libris, which was about the New York Public Library, <laughs> which is so much about people looking at something, like people looking at art or people sifting through books at the library, or people listening to like lectures at the library. This is so interaction-based. Mm -hmm. It's customer salespeople interacting with each other. Um, it just a, it has a very different kind of dynamic, um, which is kind of fun. I think that's kind of unique about this one. And I would agree. I think it looks very good. I think it's very aesthetically pleasing it's it's funny that you might describe this as saying something about materialism but i think it's also just immensely pleasing to see this store in color and all decorated for christmas i just think i personally find department stores kind of romantic in a way um yeah that you know whether especially decorated for christmas and with all oh, these luxurious yeah things in there and it's also it just felt like it was like the prime of retail at the time mm. like that's how people bought their stuff online wasn't an option and just people went all out that they did yes <laughs> yeah and you know, I, I think he's always really I don't know if compassionate is the right word or not when He's shooting people's faces and they're just like watching um, or, or listening to a speaker in a meeting or something like that. He never is like catching someone doing something embarrassing or trying to find a joke or find something funny. He always feels like he's being very generous with like how he's capturing people and he's not judging them or looking for the juicy bit. Like that is not the style at no. all. He's, um, I think he's very fair in how he captures people's and in, in, in the human face. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely, it never, yeah, I would agree. It doesn't feel like he's, he's editing for, for comedy, even though I found a lot of things funny mm -hmm. or like, or for, for <laughs> drama or anything like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Anything else? Other thoughts? I think that was, uh, about all I had, but I am very eager to watch more Wiseman films. It's amazing and awesome that he's still creating films now. Perfect for this time of year. I think his entire filmography is available on Canopy, and I think that's the only place it's available, which I think is cool. He's kind of makes sense that he would be a proponent of the public library system. Oh, yeah. So that's why they're available there. I think I read that earlier this year was the only time in like several decades that he found himself after completing his most recent film, City Hall, that he wasn't working on a new film, um, but that his next 
work was going to be a fiction film, a short fiction film. Oh, wow. Is bizarre. Is that his, his first first fiction? I don't think so. I think okay. he has done that before, but it's Been not in any way what he is known for. But it was something he could do in the oh, era during, of COVID. Yeah, yeah. So that makes sense. We'll keep an he's eye a, out for that. He's a busy man. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to episode three. We watched The Store from 1983 by Frederick Wiseman. Thanks for listening.